Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy uh, weekly podcast uh, with me, Peter White, and my colleagues, uh, Harry Morgan and Andrew Swantonart and Simon Thompson. And we're going to talk about the issue, three or four items in the issue. Our first piece really looked at um, the kind of uh, native giants in India investing in the energy transition. It's written by Andres. Andres, why don't you walk us through uh, the levels of expenditure promised by Reliance, Tata and Adani. Well, Tata and Adani had already made some commitments to renewables. The really big news story recently has been Reliance Industries. Well, it announced a 10 billion investment into Indian renewables. What's really interesting about that is that thanks to the India's protectionism and its uh, performance-linked incentive scheme, it's actually manufacturing. So it's it's got four gigafactories that it's promising one for green energy storage batteries, one for electrolyzers, one for hydrogen fuel cells, and the other was for solar. And I think people maybe rolled their eyes a little bit at how credible this was. It's certainly a very large investment. Could run afoul of you know the fact that this is mostly geared towards the Indian market, and it looks like there'll be a lot of competition, including it, from. Was it really? Is it really going to be geared towards the Indian market? That's the question I'd really like to ask. Mm. I just say that because if you are planning to bring electric vehicles into the Indian market, there are virtually none. Uh, there are 250 million combinations of bikes, three-wheelers, you know, trucks that are three-wheelers, etc. And they are probably where everyone thinks of batteries going first mm. but four-wheeler cars it's a very small market at the moment india you know i think these these factories are actually not for evs i think the, the battery factory is for for storage on the grid i think oh, and I then see. they're actually making electrolyzers and hydrogen fuel cells so it's um it's hydrogen um vehicles that's it's going to be a thing right i'm not the hydrogen or vehicle writer well that- yeah i mean certainly they could power their train trains by hydrogen and they could power uh, large transport by hydrogen but i mean no one's been able to make hydrogen fuel cells cheap enough to power your average family car harry you agree with that yeah no i agree with that i just think on the on the point of whether or not these companies can be focused on the domestic markets i think obviously the indian market for sort of clean technologies is probably undersized at the moment and i think the but the indian economy is being really propped up by these companies that are really involved in international business. I mean, I think I was reading earlier that Reliance are actually looking to buy a Norwegian soda manufacturer. I think a lot of their business is going to continue to be focused in sort of the broad markets, just just so that they can really sort of reaffirm their position and make themselves expendable, uh, inexpendable really for when the Indian energy transition happens, maybe with sort of a five year delay to maybe Europe. I mean, I think it's really important what goes on in India, because I think it holds the key to global emissions. It's really important that India is and remains on board and keeps up with the rest of the world. But what it really needs to do, open up its markets to international investment, which it is kind of, it never does, or it's got to get Reliance, Tata and Adani, these large corporations completely on board with renewable energy. And and it seems that that's what the, um, the Modi administration has managed here. It's you know, when a government reassures the market, yeah, you will get your money back. Yeah, we're behind you. Yeah, we'll make policy in line with what you need. Then people the size of reliance do pile in. But I, I do wonder to what extent this is all going to be spent in uh, in, in India. Because if you're going to make a gigafactory for batteries, 
you're probably going to start selling them into cars in other countries, I would have thought. Yeah, I, I was a bit puzzled by that because it did say for energy storage. So does that mean, does that imply grid storage? It doesn't necessarily. Mm. I mean, energy storage is energy storage. Um, yeah, but, but it but seems like a weird phrase to use. It does. It does. Um, and, and, and what's the size of this gigafactory? You know, I mean, we gigafactories have already been announced in the past by Reliance a couple of years ago. Dali, Suzuki, JSW, Hero have all said we're going to make a gigafactory. But interestingly, so did the Indian oil company. But they're not making a lithium-ion gigafactory. They're making an aluminium oxide battery factory <laughs> uh, with a partnership with some Israeli company called Finergy who's um, is managed to uh, the big problem with aluminium uh, and zinc oxide batteries is um, recharging them uh, it's, it's quite a difficult process and to do it without damaging the battery and, and Finergy has got patents in that that's gone to sleep. I haven't read any news about that for eight or nine months. Mm. But certainly it's a deal that said, that said batteries in India will last a lot longer, higher density, because they'll use uh, air as, as, as the anode. You'll get several, you'll get a thousand kilometers out of a charge and there'll probably be a replacement battery market because of, because of that. But that's a huge stride if it ever happened, but it would put India completely out of phase with the rest of the world, you know, going lithium-ion. So I, I'm starting to uh, sense a rat in these statements, and whether and like all things in India, they either happen four years late or four years later they get forgotten. I, all we know about the the supposed scale of the the investment is that for these four factories it's 10 billion. So for the solar one that's about 10 gigawatts of capacity, and then each of the others would have a couple of billion dollars going to it. And yeah, what you said I mean, about... Some of the reports said that the, the battery factory would be 25 gigawatt hours hmm. eventually. So, yeah, which is considerable. <laughs> Bigger than everything apart from uh, the... Um, it sounds the... like it might have the same, um, the same syndrome as the official government targets. Uh, I mean, it could be, or, or maybe they're going to bring in Tesla. And partner them. I mean, what would you know? Reliance would love that. But if they offer the right incentives, why wouldn't that work? Something I noticed with the with the India is, is it seems to be quite attractive to startups. And in fact, even in another story, this issue, um, I was talking about some new perovskite company, and, and its first uh, deal that it's trying to push is a factory in India as well for the same reasons: performance-linked incentives. Second story of the week was. Um, was Harry's uh, discussion about OPEC, whether or not it's going to survive. It was, it was a really interesting. It's the first time I've actually thought about it. Let's face it, at some point, OPEC either goes away or people stop quoting it because it becomes irrelevant. Right now, you know, with the, the, the oil price going up, not down, and we've got the CEO of Total a year ago saying the real price should be $50, and it's 77 heading for 100 Harry, you, your take on this was was different. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's been hitting the sort of mainstream news today, I think. Yeah, I think what the main signals from it that we can really take is that this sort of disagreement within OPEC is something that just isn't going to go away. There's going to be a lot of friction over the next few years, certainly, as the sort of assumptions that groups been making in the past, like there's going to be rising oil demand, long-term price cycles, and uh, certainly trade security with the U.S., uh, those just won't exist anymore. And I think that means that 
there's gonna be a massive sort of rethink in how OPEC is actually structured and whether or not it survives is going to be really interesting to see. I think while people assume that it won't go away, I would, really wouldn't be surprised to see it collapse at some point, which would put the oil market into turmoil. Really, it, would, it would, could really bring an end to to all as we know it. I mean, the news this week was a spat between the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, um, which normally are pretty good relation allies in how OPEC actually makes decisions. But what we've seen ahead of what was supposed to be the OPEC meeting on Monday was Saudi Arabia and Russia actually colluding to come up with a plan to raise, to ease the production cuts at a rate of around 4 billion barrels per day each month through to December. Along with that, though, they wanted to actually cut, keep the sort of cuts in place right through to the end of 22, rather than the stated deadline at the end of April. And the UAE uh, really wasn't happy with that. Um, while it's happy with the idea of more supply coming into the market, the UAE's contribution and sort of the cuts that they're facing are actually based on the their supply back in October 2018 or their production capacity in 2018. Um, and they've actually really been upping that, so they're now feeling like they're being So what's the logic for upping punished. it if they couldn't sell, sell the extra oil? So, yeah, so the UAE's, um, as a... I'm not saying they're a climate denying country, but they're certainly a very fossil fuel heavy economy. Their idea really is, oh, the oil market's going away. Let's make the most of it while we can. Because they've, they've got some of the cheapest um, or lowest cost production in the world. So they're like, we may as well realise our maximum production capacity and actually pump out oil at the lowest cost we can and capitalise on oil markets while it's good before uh, the oil market disappears completely. Yeah. Yeah, this is like a, a family business. You know, everyone's happy just to take a salary for, for 40 years. And then suddenly someone says, we're selling the family business. I want more. I want a larger share. Because it is, it's coming to an end, whether it's now or in 20 years. And everyone's starting to see that how much I can get in the next 20 years, that's it. There's not going to be any more. And I need to get more. That's going to probably lead to its eventual demise. And everyone... Uh, pushing out. Uh, 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 is it me or when we come into the energy industry, there's just this acceptance that it's legal and that World Trade Organization rules just do not apply to oil. Is it legal to fix a price of something through a cartel agreement? It's illegal in every country in the West for two companies to collude on price. We had multiple companies and countries colluding on price in the oil industry. In what way is that legal? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's completely unfair on um, some of the countries where production costs can't get that low. I mean, we talk, we've written country profiles about countries like Algeria, where sort of break-even prices around $85, $85 per barrel. And if suddenly production uh, increases and prices fall, that could, it could really shaft these economies. And uh, not, it not will... could. I think you, not the word could. It will happen and it will shaft these economies. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the US actually could be a bit of a casualty from it as well. They've got a slightly higher production price than than Saudi Arabia than Russia. So if these com- uh, these countries are happy to keep prices low, then it could be something that we really see the US struggle with. Um, I mean, they have obviously consolidated a lot in prices and now lower after COVID nineteen, but it's certainly not something the US will want to see. The other thing that Saudi Arabia also is is hoping to avoid is prices going too high. Because they're actually worried that there will be this will cause a greater ability, a greater availability of capital to accelerate the transition to renewables, and it will actually disincentivize people to buy traditional vehicles. I mean, this isn't 
2007 it's not when we had the previous oil crisis so it's not like people are going to be happy to pay I mean in the country 200 pounds per uh, per gallon per, per gallon of petrol so they will sort of shift towards electric vehicles and it will actually accelerate well, I mean they are shifting I mean if you look at news this week electric vehicles I mean the UK numbers are out are up seven percent on last year I mean seven percent of total sales gone from uh, roughly 10 to roughly 17 uh, percent of total sales have gone EVs and it's accelerating faster than anyone else has, apart from us has ever forecast and and it is partly this pressure you know I've been buying petrol for over 40 years at no stage has it ever gone down I think it went back down half a p for a week once you know <laughs> it's never gone down in price and yet the pet the oil price goes up and down based on uh, some cartel that we have no control over and yet the oil price never goes down it just keeps going up and up and up and whether that is government government uh, tax on on petrol or whether that is simply the price of oil it, it's a combination but it can't just go up forever it's not an inelastic demand and evs prove that and uh, you're absolutely right it's gonna cause an almighty mess in investment markets they always talk about it being already being in as soon as you know it's going to happen it, it goes in the price it becomes part of the price of a stock i mean it's in the price of uh, of exxon mobil they can't understand why but it, it is in the price of these stocks and there is more bad news to come and i think if opec i think this is inevitable opec's going to kick off at some point and uh, fall apart the UAE has already said that it, it's, it would consider going alone in, the, alone in the past. I think if the UAE leaves, it's probably the, the third largest member of OPEC. I mean, it is. And I think if they go and suddenly start pumping more oil into the market, then other countries also will. I mean, Russia will be keen to sort of steer itself away from OPEC Plus. Uh, we'll probably see Kuwait to try and do the same thing. So, and the only weapon they've got is that Saudis would increase their production and flood the market uh, to hurt these other organisations, and that's, I mean, yeah, it probably would do that. And it did that in the in the when when Trump intervened in in the crisis uh, beginning of last year. But uh, that's that's the only hammer they have to hit this with. They'll come to an agreement because it's it's just too important for them on a day to day basis. But this friction will remain. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. This this. I mean, it's likely that this conflict will be resolved, but I think they'll, it will, it's just going to be a case of this is the sort of problem we see more and more frequently. Uh, and at some point there will be something irreversible that happens. Someone will leave OPEC. They'll start pumping, uh, ramping up their production. Uh, then the countries actually within OPEC will have to do the same. And that's when we'll see the oil, the sort of irreparable oil crisis actually happen. And that's when the oil industry will just come to its knees, I imagine. Goodbye, OPEC. Um I did a piece this week. I was um, shocked by some uh, economists at the um, at the Office of Budget Responsibility. I had to look up who they were, you know, because uh, you go, well, is this a conservative thing? And of course, it was an office set up by a previous conservative administration. So it, it's it may or may not be uh, a group that the Labour Party and other UK parties listen to, but they've they've worked out that the cost to the British government of climate change only has to be 469 billion and we've gone through several years of hearing it's going to be 10 trillion it's going to be 2 trillion it's going to certainly in the trillions and this is the cost to the uk government and they say there's going to be so many benefits coming from the transition 
uh, and they did list some of the benefits, that this would actually fall um, to about 344 billion in terms of cost to the government. Uh, they, they think the whole transition is going to cost about 1.4 uh, trillion, the whole decarbonisation of the UK. But these are the kind of numbers, I, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it, because on the one hand, we've been saying that, we've been saying to, to governments, use policy before you use cash. Cash is just a way of, governments spend cash badly, and they always have the wool pull over their eyes and large industrials get rich and nothing much changes. So I'm always worried about people spending cash. I always say use policy first. And we have used policy to a certain extent in Europe to to end the reign of uh, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. And and we, you know, we, we've brought in electric vehicles and we're going to do the same for uh, decarbonising boilers in people's homes at, at some point in the next couple of years. So, but at, at the same time, really, is, it, is climate change less of a threat than the pandemic? Because we've spent more than this on the pandemic. Did we just spend exactly. unwisely in the pandemic? You know, that's, that's, that's the issue. Um, but I did go over the numbers. It was a 280-page report. Um, there there were, were, was lots of detail of how they saw things. The biggest item was back to the same the last, previous discussion, fuel tax. You know, the, the, we're gonna, as, as oil um, sales fall, the government gets less tax revenue from, uh, from the car industry. Well, they didn't think, oh, well, we'll just tax some other aspects of cars like range or or recharges no no they just said um we're going to uh it's difficult the uk is it's very inward looking they've spent their off gem is spends its entire life keeping the price of electricity down and the idea of taxing the electricity that you put into your ev is is horrifies people right now in 10 years it won't because it, the cost of driving your car will be one third what it used to be once you get an ev and then tax it, taxing that instead, it will, it will naturally uh, transition. They did some sums on that, but the, the numbers on when they transitioned seemed to me a little bit negative. But there are only so, two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. Well, the, the rude version of that is just three things, but we won't go into it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, so the tax, taxation um, or... The, the UK government is is terrified of losing the fuel, the tax it gets on uh, on fuel, and that's why they're so close to companies like BP, uh, and they listen to them, and that's why they get their transition sums wrong. Uh, I, I don't. This being an independent group, I thought they did a pretty good job, and they certainly have. They understand, uh, and, and this was purely to um, tell UK policymakers, and by extension. All European policymakers look at one another how to manage an energy transition. And we are getting to the point where a fully costed energy transition will be will become an official government document at some point. Not 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 soon, but you know, in two, three years maybe.